Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be filled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, and the surrender of the sanctuary and of the host, and it's being put underfoot. And he said to me, It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, as we consider this uh, mysterious passage, we pray as always for insight and understanding into who you are, into who we are, and into our relationship that you're calling us into with you, with ourselves, and with each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, again, it's so uh, great to see everybody here and to see everybody on Zoom, and we're, we're having fun together. I hope you're having fun, and uh, we're looking forward to continuing to worship here, and we are in the midst of our fall uh, series looking at select passages from the prophetic books of Daniel and the Revelation. There's a lot to cover. We're not getting all into everything, but we're doing the best we can, and so if you go to adventhope.org, you can find... Uh, You can find all of the previous messages as we wrestled with uh, some important uh, topics in this series. And so we've been having a good time together, and I hope you'll go back if you want to do a little uh, streaming to catch up on the series. We'd love to have you go there. Well, today we are looking at what has to be one of the most formative texts, certainly in all of uh, the Advent movement's history. And so, that we, you know, we, this, uh, this community is from the, the Seventh-day Adventist tradition, and you just can't find a passage that has been more influential to the development of the Advent movement than Daniel chapter 8 and four, verse 14. Those early Adventists who were expecting that Jesus would return again really found their, their, their root in this, in this passage. In fact, they interpreted Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14 and the mysterious time prophecy that's mentioned there, they interpreted that as being related to the return of Jesus. And so you may know the story. They did a, time, they did a calculation and came up with a date, and they determined that Jesus was going to return uh, during this, this time. And so obviously that, that didn't happen. Uh, but then there was some reinterpretation, and that's what we want to talk about uh, today. What is going on in this re- reinterpretation? So we have uh, Daniel who is, uh, at this time, he's an administrator in, uh, in the king's court, and he has this vision where these uh, holy ones come to him, and he's seeing these things from God, this visual uh, display, spectac- spectacular visual display from God, and he is trying to kind of discern what's going on. So he's asking questions just like you and me, and what he sees, a goat and a ram, and if you read through Daniel, you'll see all kinds of other illustrations there, kind of of symbolizing political powers of the day. And so it's in the midst here where this time prophecy shows up. And again, so this, this time passage was interpreted by those early Adventists as relating to the return of Jesus. Again, we're all still here. That was 177 years ago, by the way. We're still, still here, so you know that that was obviously incorrect. But as they wrestled with what was going on, they wanted to find like clearly 
they wanted to find out what really was, was happening here. And so the reinterpretation was that this was not referring, obviously, to the return of Jesus, but it was, re, it was in regards to what would happen before the return of Jesus. And so that reinterpretation uh, concluded that uh, Daniel 8.14 was predicting when the time would come when God would start determining who wanted to be in relationship with him and who didn't for eternity. Before Jesus comes, he was going to determine who wanted to be a part of God's kingdom and who wanted to embrace Jesus. And so that process starting all the way back those many years ago, now 177 years ago. And so those early Advent believers came to this conclusion that what Daniel 8.14 was talking about was a time of judgment, a time of decision, a time when God was deciding again who wanted to be in relationship with him and who wanted to be part of his kingdom. Now, the interpretation includes, if you've heard this before, some math, and uh, we're not going to get into that today, some, some, some wild math. Um, I think we have a, a visual back in the, back in the day, uh, early Adventists, by the way, and this is not a joke, were at the forefront of like visual rep- representation, so they were like the, uh, the designers of their day. This was like love life transforming to come out with this uh this map and so they would go around with a big version of this and explain all these dates so we're not going to do this right now because you can you can go online and you can find out the dates and find out the math in fact if you uh google william miller's calculation actually if you google anything about william miller you're going to probably end up with this and uh they're they're going to get into the dates and how they ended up with october 22 1844, that was the date in which they determined that Jesus was going to come again and then reinterpreted from there. So anyway, we're going to let you do that because that would take too much time uh, for us today. And I know some, we've got some folk who need to get to the airport this afternoon. So we're, we're making this, we're, we're, we're going getting down to business. Okay, anyway, you can Google this. The question for us today is not the details and not the math. You can look that up. The question is, what are the implications of the idea that we, you and I, and humans are living in a time of judgment, a time when God is determining whether we are with Him and want to be a part of His kingdom, want to be in relationship with Him, or not. What are the implications of that? And uh, now, I I should know that 177 years ago, it was a little bit controversial, the idea that uh, Jesus would determine before He comes. I don't know why this was so controversial, but before He comes, that He would determine, He would uh, decide who wanted to be in this kingdom or not. That seems obvious to me. If he's going to come, he's going to make that determination. But it was a little bit controversial at the time. But now, I mean, the idea that uh, God is going to decide before he comes whether we want to be a part of it makes complete sense. And so again, our question really today is what are the implications of this? Now, before we get to that question, though, just this, this idea of judgment is one that goes way back in the Bible narrative. In fact, the best corollary to the idea of a time of judgment that we find in the Bible is what uh, is called the Day of Atonement in the first five books of the Bible, in the books of Moses. We have this a description of a day, a special day uh, each year when, in essence, judgment happened. And so once a year, and our, by the way, our Jewish friends today still celebrate the Day of Atonement, and it's a day of fasting, it's a day of confession, it's a day of prayer. And it all goes back to the ceremonial system that God established and that's articulated in the first five books of the Bible. And there you have this, this whole system set up 
a visual representation, if you will, that what God was showing to the people, these people that he was teaching about himself, to a visual representation of how he was going to go about saving the world. You know, in Genesis chapter 1, you have the story of creation, Genesis 1 and 2, and in Genesis 3, you have the story of the fall where humans choose against God, and the rest of the Bible, you can make the case, the rest of the Bible is about the story of how God was going to go and make things right, how he's going to help us to be back in relationship with him. And so he created this visual symbol in the ceremonial system that uh, articulated very clearly like how and what he was going to do to rescue humanity from the brokenness of the world that we live in. And the Day of Atonement was a part of that. Once a day, once a year, uh, the, the community would come together and they would pray and they would confess and they would turn their sins over to God. There was a sacrificial system. An animal would go. The sins were like, throughout the year, by the way, were transported into like a sin storage area, if you will, called the tabernacle, right? But on the Day of the Atonement, the high priest would go into the sin storage area and remove the sin symbolically from the, the storage area. Again, you can read all of this. We don't have time to get into all the details of this, but you can read this in the first five books of the Bible. Specifically, the book of Leviticus talks about the Day of Atonement and all that went into this. And again, it's the best, it's the best corollary. It's the best type, if you will, of the idea of the end time uh, judgment scene. Before Jesus comes, he also is determining whether we are turning our sins over to God. That was about the Day of Atonement was like, did everybody give God their sins. Not did everybody fix themselves. Did everybody make themselves holy? That was not the, the implication. The implication was, did you repent and give your sin over to God? That was the day of atonement, end time judgment, time period in which we're in. That's the best that's, that's, that's represented by that. Same thing. Did you give your sins, did you repent and turn your, th- your sins over to God and let him take care of it? That was the big issue of the day of atonement. It's the big issue today. And so again, there was an element of judgment in this day of atonement mentioned back in Leviticus. But we want to know, like, what are the implications of this for us today? If we're living in a time of judgment, what does that mean for how we should live? How do you live if you're being judged? If we're living in a time of judgment, what does that mean for us? Well, Clearly, if we're living in a time when God is determining whether we want to be in relationship and want to be in his kingdom or not, we should be living as if we are facing judgment. We should be living as if God is really making that decision, if he's making that determination. Uh, Now, I think we are, especially as New Yorkers, for those of us who are here, we are very accustomed to the idea of judgment, right? If, uh, If the boss at work is considering promotions, and uh, you're up for promotion, that's judgment. <laughs> Boss is determining if you're, you're ready for a promotion. You probably want to let the boss know that you want the promotion, and you might do that in various ways, right? So we are familiar with the idea of judgment, about people looking at us and making judgments about us. This is not unfamiliar, even if you're not in New York, to us, right? So we get this idea of judgment. The challenge, of course, is that living in a constant state of judgment, of being judged, is incredibly difficult. All right, so 
<laughs> the hope when, that, that when your boss is doing the judgment, that that is going to end at some point. That's not going to just go on indefinitely. So here we are 177 years into this, this time of judgment, and we're still around, and it's like this is going on a little bit too long. And so it's difficult living in a time of judgment indefinitely. Why? 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 Well, as always, I have a couple ideas for you that I want to share. Um, as always, I have three ideas. You might have noticed by now I love three. So three ideas. There are others, but these are the three. Why is living in a time of judgment indefinitely, incredibly, incredibly challenging? Well, first of all, we don't like uncertainty. Now, I'm speaking a little bit from my own. You, you, I've already confessed this to you, right, from my own experience. Like, I don't love uncertainty. I like to know what's coming next. But I am guessing that a lot of you are in the same boat as I am. Like, indefinite, especially uncertainty, is really uncomfortable. And waiting for judgment, especially because it's something about something so profound in our experience, is really, really, really a little disconcerting. Now, I'm telling you, I struggle with this a little bit. To back that up, I will also say science supports this idea of uncertainty and our not being comfortable with this. We, our brains are wired. Our brains are wired to protect us, all right? And uncertainty means that we're not sure. So our brains are like, I don't know what's happening. I don't like this. And that can lead to fear, right? So if you have, especially indefinite uncertainty, it can make you afraid. Like, I don't know what's going to happen. Am I going to be okay? Research, by the way, has shown that the brain prefers physical pain to uncertainty. There were some, uh, some British researchers, and they got together and they put together this, this, uh, uh, this, this project where they were going to try to determine, like, how do people react to uncertainty? And so they said to the, the people who were to good, good part of this study, hey, uh, one group, you're going to get a shock, okay? I don't think the British love shocking people over there, all right? So, so half the group, you're just going to know you're going to get an electrical shock that's going to be painful. And they took another group and they said, you might get an electrical shock, all right? Uh, and and, and, and uh, so it, there was some uncertainty. You know, the people who knew that they were going to get a painful electric shock were far more peaceful than the people who were unsure. Same shock, same pain, but the uncertainty made the people who had that uncertainty much less uncomfortable. Like, if you know it's coming, if you know it's coming, you're okay with it. It's kind of like some of us are going to go and we're going we're gonna to get the vaccine, we're going to get the, poked with a needle, and if you know it's coming, you're okay. But if somebody just jams you on the street, that's, or you know that might happen, that's disconcerting. Boy, please, let's not, in, let's not initiate that vaccine policy, by the way. All right, anyway. So uncertainty, we're uncomfortable with uncertainty. So what do we do? We try to set things up so that we're going to be certain about things. We make little comfort pods for ourselves. We try to organize our life so we know what is coming next and we don't have uncertainty. And, you know, all well and good, but the reality is you're going to run into uncertain things in your life and it's going to make you uncomfortable. And so the idea that we are in judgment, a time of judgment, there's uncertainty that goes along with that. And that can make us uncomfortable and afraid. Uh, secondly, we don't like the idea of, of judgment because, let's be honest, 
Some of us are really worried about not being good enough. We're worried that we're not good enough. Religious or not, most of us have a feeling that there is something going on in our inside that just that we're not who the people that we want to be. And so we don't feel good enough that there's something missing in our experience and who we are. And the idea that we're being judged only exacerbates this, this feeling of unease. Oh, somebody is watching and I'm not the person I want to be and maybe they're going to find out. And so we reflect on our own shortcomings and we're, that can lead to like just a spiral of despair. And so what do we do? Well, we try to stop comparing ourselves to others Others, a great strategy. We focus on our good attributes. Uh, maybe, maybe we lower the bar, which is weird because if there is a judge that has a bar and we're lowering it, that's probably not going to end out for the best for us. But we do that. We try to rationalize. Okay, well, you know, maybe we're going to lower the bar a little bit. Or, or we start thinking more highly of ourselves than we should. All of these are reactions to this issue that we don't feel good enough. And so we've, we've got to deal with that somehow. And so we come up with all kinds of strategies. Finally, the, the idea that we are living in judgment is disconcerting and problematic because it's tiring to think that someone might have something against you. Right? If you know that there is someone who might have something against you and you live indefinitely in that that in that experience, that can be incredibly challenging and incredibly tiring. And so when facing judgment, it's tempting to start thinking and resent, thinking bad feelings and maybe have resentment about the one who's doing the judge, judging. So if it's your boss, like, who is that, who is that person? How did they get in the position that they are? And so resentment can build about the person doing the judging. So when it's God doing judging, it's really easy to get resentful about this. God, how dare he? How dare he? So this is the reality of living in a time of judgment, that we've got all of these anxieties and fears because we're worried. We're worried about ourselves. We know we're not, not good enough. We're not sure about the, about the judge and whether the judge is really on our side or not. And so... Anxiety and fear come out of that. And so how do we proceed going forward in a time of judgment without spiraling into despair? How do we live in a time of judgment and still flourish? Well, there's good news. You know, Jesus faced judgment. We're told on the, the night before his death that he went into the garden. And it was such an intense experience <laughs> looking forward to judgment that he sweat drops of blood. I mean, that is some intensity, right? And he called his best friends around him to, to, to support him. He, he knew judgment was coming. In fact, we're told in Mark that uh, he went out into the garden like by himself. And he cried out, Daddy, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup of judgment from me. Yet not my will, but your will. <laughs> Jesus faced judgment head on in a way that we'll never experience. 
And Jesus passed judgment. We know this because after three days, a tomb in which he was lying, dead, opened up, and he came out. Right? That's the, that's the great news. Jesus faced judgment. Judgment like we'll never have to face. And he came back from that judgment. He passed the judgment. And the great hope of the Bible is that because Jesus did that, we can face judgment with new eyes. Because of Jesus' work on our behalf, we can live in a time of judgment with hope because what Jesus did in that judgment scene is passed over and on to us. Because Jesus succeeded in facing judgment, because he came out of the, the grave, and because he uh, uh, rose to the, to the sky as the, the one who brings glory to, to, to God and to, to this earth, we have hope that we can face judgment too. We can live in a time of judgment because God passes Jesus' success on to us. Because of Jesus, we can be certain of our place in the judgment. You know, we said part of the reason that living in a time of judgment is so challenging is because there's uncertainty. But Joel chapter 2, verse 32 says this, anyone and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Man, that is a way to face judgment. Like, God is making a decision. He's determining who wants to be with him. And Joel says, anyone who calls in the name of Jesus is going to be saved. There's no uncertainty anymore, right? So what's disconcerting about living in a time of judgment is the uncertainty. But Joel tells us, and Joel's not alone, tells us that if we call on the name of the Lord, we will be saved. Uncertainty is taken away. Listen, I know a lot of Christians who have spent their entire experience with, with fear and uncertainty, even though they've heard the story before. And living with uncertainty creates fear in your experience. We know that. Science tells us that. God is inviting us into a relationship because of the work of Jesus with him that does not have uncertainty. You don't have to live in uncertainty. Anyone and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the good news of the gospel. It's the best news the world has ever heard. We're all living with uncertainty, but because of Jesus, we have the hope of certainty. Uh, we said we, <laughs> we worry that we're not good enough. This is another reason why living in a time of judgment is so challenging. We're concerned that we're not good enough. And you know what? We're right. We're right. Our inclination that we're not good enough is absolutely dead on. We're not good enough. But again, the great news of the work of Jesus is he was good enough. Jesus was good enough. And because he was good enough, he passes his goodness on to us. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses, verse 21. This is the great message of Paul, that, 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 that man who lived in fear and uncertainty about his experience but had like a transformation in his heart. And he said this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The implication of that is that God, through Jesus, takes Jesus' goodness and gives it to us. So in the judgment, we get Jesus' goodness. This is good news. You all with me here? This is good news. When, when you, you, again, it's the sad truth that we talk about 
even among Christians, above believers, and they're freaked out about like their it's salvation and what's going to happen. <laughs> Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord is going to be saved, and God transfers Jesus' goodness to you. This is, this is in our heading in our direction. Finally, we said we fear judgment when it comes from God because we're not sure if the judge is for us or not. We're not sure if God is for us or not. I know a lot of Christians who aren't totally convinced that God is for them, who live with that, that, that fear that maybe God is out to get them, and he's looking to you know, make sure, oh, oh, you didn't do this right, you didn't do that right, and you, this is, of course you're going to live with a burden if you feel that way about God. But Second Peter says this, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise about the return of Jesus, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to be lost. That may be the most important passage that you'll read about God in the entire Bible. God doesn't want anyone to be lost. He doesn't want anyone to be lost. So this image of God who is like trying to trying to, to, to he's angry and he's, he's, he's trying to like be particular about things because he wants everybody to just get it together. It's not the picture of God that the Bible portrays. The picture of God that the Bible portrays is a God who doesn't want anyone to be lost, which means he's going to do everything possible in his power, a power that created the universe to make sure that we are not lost. God is for us. He's not against us. And that is good news. In this world where people aren't sure of who's for you and against you, God is for you, not against you. The enemy has been trying to promote the idea that God is against us for a very, very long time. But Peter makes it clear, no, God, God is for you. Doesn't want anyone to be lost. Finally, John, the same John who we've been talking about in Revelation, he writes this. This is how we know that we live in God and Him in us. He has given us His Spirit. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God and then this is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence in the time of judgment. Confidence in the time of judgment. That's what, okay. We're living in a time of judgment when God is determining who wants to be with him. John says you can have confidence in the time of judgment. And when you have confidence that God is for you, not against you, that the work of Jesus means that we receive the good works of Jesus in, in place of our bad works, when we have that confidence, we can, we can look at judgment in a positive manner. I can't wait to be judged because I want to be with God and He is for me and He's done everything possible to make it so that I can be with Him. And so the invitation for all of us today is to embrace this good news. Confess faith in this Jesus who has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves and allow God to change our hardened hearts and help us to have a new view of his judgment, a time when he is longing to bring us in to his kingdom 
as he prepares for the return of the Lord Jesus when all things will be made new. May God do this work of giving us peace and encouragement and patience in this time of judgment today. Amen.